Welcome to the Flight Safety Detectives. Hosts John Golia and Greg Fife, two of the world's most respected aviation safety experts, talk all things related to aviation and aerospace. This podcast and the Flight Safety Detectives YouTube channel are brought to you by the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association, PAMA, and Avemco Insurance, a world-class provider of aviation insurance and your one-stop for all general aviation insurance needs. Get a customized quote at avemco.com or give them a call at 888-879-0389. Tell them you're a listener of the show and receive a 5% discount. Now it's time to buckle up because it's wheels up for the latest episode of Flight Safety Detectives. Well, hello, gentlemen. It's another episode of Flight Safety Detectives. It's always good to see you, Todd, and you, John. And in fact, you and I were together, which we'll talk about a little later on. Um, I want to get right into uh, to this accident because uh, it is one of those accidents where, again, we always talk about mid-air collisions. This happened to be an accident, a collision on the ground between a Cessna 152 and a vintage Warbird T-28. And we'll talk a little bit about uh, both of those aircraft and their stature and what may have inhibited uh, the T-28 pilot's ability to see the 152 as we get into this. But Todd, you've brought up uh, some of the documents out of the NTSB uh, docket, and it, it serves as a good guide for us to just walk through this was an interview with the T-28 pilot that did, in fact, survive. This was uh, an accident that occurred at Compton Airport in, in California, in L.A. Um, the Cessna 152 had a flight instructor and a student on board. They were returning to the airport. The T-28 was coming out of uh, Whiteman Field, uh, just a little north and east of, uh, of Compton. And uh, unfortunately, both aircraft were arriving at the airport at Compton at about the same time. Um, it was very late in the afternoon into um, sunset, which ends up playing a factor in this accident, which we'll talk about. And um, of course, there are a lot of elements that we always talk about, especially when we're talking about mid-air collisions and that is situational awareness and being able to see other aircraft, to see and avoid concept, if you will, listening on frequency for radio calls and things like this. This particular accident is kind of textbook for what not to do. And, and that is because you had, at least we have a lot of information about the T-28 pilot who the NTSB eventually cited for being the cause of this accident. But when you start looking at all of the elements there are some questions about the 152 pilots um, because we don't have a lot of um, good information and some of the witness statements uh, talk about the fact that they didn't hear either aircraft uh, making radio calls. So as we get into this, we'll, we'll address each of these, but I think this is a good script for us to just walk through since this is the surviving pilot of the T-28. He's a 24,000 hour total, total time pilot. He uh, used to be a military pilot. He flew for the, uh, for the airlines, so he'd accumulated a lot of experience. He was an older gentleman at the time of the accident. He was 84 years old. 
Um, he had experience in the T-28, about 400 hours of flight time in the T-28. Um, he did work at the, uh, at the museum where these warbirds are housed. And so he's familiar with it. And in fact, this was one of the reasons uh, he was in this airplane was that he was repositioning the airplane on behalf of the museum. Now, one of the keys here, of course, is recency of experience, how much familiarity he had and things like that. And as we walk through this, Todd, I think there's going to be some very uh, pertinent questions and some of his answers are very questionable. And John, I know that as we talk, uh, one of the things that you always close our show with is, of course, pre-flight preparation. It's one thing to just go out and check the airplane, make sure it's airworthy. But this is, this is the planning part of pre-flight prep. That is because as we see, as we go through this, this pilot was not prepared in any way, shape or form to be flying this airplane not for the reason that he didn't have experience or didn't know how to fly it. It was all of the other things that go into pre-flight planning. So I think uh, as we start off and, and you, the viewer on the screen can see, um, this is bullet points that were captured during an interview with the accident pilot. And we've chosen to pick some of the more poignant things to talk about. Of course, you can get to this by looking at the NTSB docket on, on their website. Um, there's also a video that we will put on our website as well as the link to this, uh, this particular file. But the video is very telling as well. And it reiterates what we're gonna be talking about today. So I think to, uh, to get started, one of the first things that we notice here, Todd, is, uh, is the comment that, um, however, due to a recent injury sustained to his leg, the sciatic nerve, he has not flown uh, the Beach Bonanza. Now, he got the Beach Bonanza because he used to apparently own a T-28 and decided that he couldn't fly it anymore. So he, he went down to a Beach Bonanza. But of course, he hadn't been flying that airplane because of this physical injury. You know, it fits into what, what uh, we've been saying on the program for a while about getting rusty on your flying skills. And when you come back to fly, you should fly with somebody, a friend or somebody else who knows how to fly, especially if they know how to fly the airplane that you're in. And uh, get familiar with the airplane. Get somebody to help get you back in the groove, so to speak. And obviously, he hadn't flown this airplane, this type of airplane in over a year. He hadn't flown very much in that year, and he hadn't flown but, but uh, a little bit in the last 90 days. So, I mean, Rusty was, is a, a general term. This guy was so far out, he probably needed to have an instructor pilot before he did much of anything. And as we see in the bullet points, he'd flown about 20 hours in the previous year, like an hour and a half a month. He'd only flown the airplane he'd purchased, the Bonanza, twice. Hadn't flown that in 90 days and hadn't flown a T-28 in a year, almost a year. So uh, again, if you're looking at risk factors of lack of currency, lack of, lack of recent experience, this is in black and white right here. And you have to ask yourself, I mean, we, we talk about it, the FAA wants us to, to uh, incorporate it into our pre-flight planning, and that is the I'm safe and of course, uh, fit to fly. That is, you have to ask yourself, are you mentally and physically 
prepared for the flight. And here you got a guy who admits that he's got a, a sciatic issue. He can't fly his own bonanza. So what makes him think that he can fly this beast of an airplane called a T-28, which takes a little, a lot more effort than uh, flying a beach bonanza. So, I mean, all of a sudden now you have these contrasts like, well, I couldn't fly this, but I sure could fly that. And oh, by the way, I haven't flown this one in a year, even if I've only flown my bonanza twice. I mean, it's just, where's the logic there? And uh, we've talked about this, you know, as we talk about accident investigation is you have to look at logic patterns. You have to look at what's going on. Why are pilots making you know, good decisions, but of course, why are they making bad decisions? What influences them in making that kind of, uh, that kind of action to think they can accomplish them? And this wasn't anything about him physically flying the airplane, but it's all of the soft skills that were necessary to operate this airplane safely um, between point A and point B. And as we move on and we talk about his currency, of course, you have to look at, he was pushing the, uh, the edge for his, um, his annual or his flight review. He was coming up on that two-year limit. And so he was going to be, um, of course, required to, uh, to fulfill that requirement of the federal aviation regulations. Now, one of the things that you brought up earlier, Todd, which um, as we were reading through this, is the fact that here you got a guy with all this experience. He's an airline, ex-airline pilot. He's got 24,000 hours. He holds an ATP. Um, he's an supposedly an accomplished aviator. He's got a medical certificate that says you must wear corrective lenses. And what does the investigation find? He wasn't wearing them. Yeah. I mean, again, what's going on? You're supposed to wear glasses. Why not wear them? You've been wearing them probably your entire life. <laughs> Why all of a sudden on this particular day do you choose not to wear glasses? And there's some I obvious environmental situations going on, which you'll see plainly in the video. This is an east-to-west runway. He's landing to the west. It's near sunset. And there's glare to beat the band out there. And he doesn't even have his sunglasses on. Yep. So what's the logic behind that? Exactly. And, and this is an airport he's familiar with. He flies in this area because he lives in this area. So this isn't anything technically new to him. He knows this. So why isn't this factored into his decision making and his operational discipline with regard to going into this airport? And some of the kicker with this, of course, is the fact that he was coming out of Whiteman Field. That's where the airplane had been down for quite a long time, having some repairs to it. Uh, there was some controversy before he took off as to who was going to fly the airplane back to Compton as a repositioning flight. And it was then decided, I guess, by him that he was going to do it. Um, was he really prepared, given the fact that apparently he wasn't initially prepared to be conducting this flight? It was one of those last minute decisions. I'm going to do it now. As he was talking to the other person who was slated to take the airplane back, um, this other person ended up setting up the radios uh, for him. Now, again, that's kind of questionable. Why is it that someone else is setting up the radios? This guy's the pilot in command. He's operating this airplane. He's the only one in the aircraft. Does he not? I mean, he's got experience in the airplane, so he knows how to set up the radio. So why is the other guy setting up the radio? And, um, and, and one of the findings 
um, eventually was that uh, this pilot wasn't on uh, the correct radio frequencies uh, for Compton. And we'll talk about that here in a second, but it was evident from the, uh, the interview that it's uh, one bullet point just prior to the accident flight, Mr. Drew briefed him on the work performed, configured the transponder code and set up the radio frequencies. Mr. Deal stated that he had great difficulty reading the comm frequency screen as it was low, the screen was small, and he needed to bend his head down and to the left to see the screen. That's just to get in a position to see the screen. Oh, by the way, could he see anything without glasses? I mean, <laughs> again, so he's already set the stage with these cause and contributing factors in that sequence of events. Because if he's having a problem before he ever leaves the ground, how is he going to manipulate the frequencies to make sure he's on the right frequency as he progresses from Whiteman Field towards Compton? Because he is in, he's in a number of areas of uh, Class B and Class C airspace. And how is he going to deal with that? Because you got to be in two-way radio communication. How is he going to communicate as he gets into the area of Compton? And uh, again be able to properly communicate. You know, and it goes, goes beyond that. Um, as the pilot in command, it is your responsibility to make sure that the airplane is properly configured, et cetera, et cetera. Doesn't matter how badly designed ergonomically the aircraft is. It's not an excuse. If you're supposed to tune the radio to a particular frequency, you have to tune into that frequency. If it's difficult to bend over or whatnot, well, you have a choice. You can either experience a little bit of pain bending over. You can have someone else fly the aircraft or perhaps you can have a safety pilot. You got to watch the way you say that, Todd. <laughs> <laughs> it's a family show. I know. I know. So yep. again, it is one's responsibility as a pilot in command. You cannot shirk that responsibility. You can't delegate it to someone else. The phrase pilot in command means you're in command. No one else. You know, one thing that, that he mentions in there that we just went over rather quickly is the airplane's been down for over a year. It's had a lot of work to it, and he wasn't aware of it. Yeah. You know, he the pilot's responsible for the airworthiness of the airplane. Does he know? Did he make any effort to find out that this airplane was, in fact, airworthy? Has it been a hangar queen for a year, and we're just going to roll it out and take off? I mean, really, there's a lot of questions to be asked and answered right in that area. Yep. And, and John, you and I have just had this discussion because we were on the road together giving some safety presentations. And the fact is, you don't take an airplane right out of maintenance and assume with tacit trust that everything has been done and done correctly. So not only do you have to determine if the airplane's airworthy, you better make sure you're able to fly it. <laughs> um, you know, there was 20 pilots in, in that group that we spoke to. But we spent two days with them, I, and none of them said that they ever went back and looked at the logbook in, yep. the, in the work package. None of them. So I said, this was a, a, a large, a good-sized 91 operation, corporate flying, professional pilots. Uh, I mean, give me a break. The, some of the basics, the basics are, are just, are, are, have we come that blind to them? Are we just pushing it aside? Right. Assumptions give put all of us in trouble 
right? And uh, and that's a that's a big assumption. And and again, a lot of us. Well, not I shouldn't say that. That's lumping everybody together. But in my experience, a lot of pilots put a lot of trust, tacit trust, in the mechanic. They just assume that the mechanic turned the wrench, the mechanic wrote the logbook uh, right up to return the airplane to service. Therefore, it's good to go. And that's just the wrong attitude to have. So in the airlines, in a major operation, the highest level of safety, supposedly. But one of the things they do on any critical work is a second set of eyes. Somebody who didn't do the work has got to come over and look at it. In a formal company, it's an inspector who does nothing but that kind of work day in and day out. In smaller operations, it's just another mechanic that uh, wasn't associated with the work, but will come over and take a look at it. I mean, maintenance organizations don't accept the, the individual's word on critical components. They have someone else looking at it. So pilots should have a similar attitude. They worked on my airplane. Do they, why don't they ask that question? Did somebody look at this after you did the work? Yeah. No, well, let's look, let's look at it together. Oh, let's look at it again. A second check on top of the, you know, on top of the first check is not a bad idea. It's your butt that's in the airplane. You know, protect it. And I was, well, I know you heard it in my voice and, <laughs> and what I said to those individuals uh, yeah. behind closed doors. But I mean, it's very frustrating to, to see that that uh, bad habit that has not only crept in, has taken over this flight department that yeah. we were talking to, where they just don't check the airplane when it's coming out of maintenance. Yeah. Well, moving on with uh, some of these bullet points. Um, so we've already set the stage that this pilot probably wasn't as prepared as he should have been. The fact is, is after he departed, he was going to fly this flight at low level, and he did at about 1,000 a, a feet AGL. Now, all of the airspace in and around the LA basin. I mean, it's so controlled. You got more traffic and you know what to do with. And, you know, it, it does take some skill to navigate through that, but it also takes skill to be able to communicate with the appropriate um, uh, controlling facilities to make sure that you don't inadvertently do things. And in this particular instance, it was interesting because uh, this pilot kind of confessed that he may have inadvertently penetrated some of the airspace around Fullerton, California. So now you got a guy, even though he has a sectional sitting in his lap, supposedly, and he's flown this area and done all of these things. Now you have him making mistakes. And even though he admitted to it at the time, that too could have posed a problem, not only to himself, but of course, other aircraft, because it was in the area of a busy airport, Fullerton airport. So when you look at all of these Again, little things. In isolation, they don't really mean much. But now you start stacking these blocks. And in this particular case, these blocks started to stack up as, as he got closer to, uh, to Compton. And, and again, when you look at it, he was following the highways, typically uses ground reference. He, be he began to become concerned because the haze was extreme. The sun was low and bright, obscuring his forward visibility, and he was initially unable to find Compton Airport. 
really, dude? Come on. I mean, you don't just wander around out there and hope that you get lucky by rolling the dice going, oh, yeah, that looks like Compton. I'll go there. When, in fact, it may or may not be. But again, it just demonstrates that he was not well prepared, even on this very short flight and operating in an area that he's supposedly very familiar with. I mean, it's just, I mean, this is the kind of storybook lines that we see. And it's just like, what were you thinking? And speaking of storybook lines, this line really jumped out at me. He then saw an open area on the ground that he thought was likely the airport and confirmed it was the airport as he got closer. Thank goodness he wasn't wrong. What if that was a rail yard? What if that was something else that was flat and kind of in the airport area and he gets too close and then what? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So the roll of his glasses right here uh, impacts him again. He had trouble finding the highway. That's probably because of his eyesight, right? And the haze, you know, the haze was multiplied uh, by his poor eyesight. The same thing here with finding the airport. I Who mean, that, did he uh, forget his glasses? Character and he from didn't... the 60s, no, the... Mr. Magoo? Yeah, that's a good one, Bud. <laughs> yeah, Mr. Magoo. That's, a, that's about what we're facing here. The man's 84 years old. I mean, what's the status of any cataracts that he may have had? Is he, does he have tunnel vision because of them? as they close in around on his eye. I mean, it's just, this is crazy. I think it's, I think the, it's not only crazy for him, but I think it's crazy for the, for the other people involved, the museum and this other pilot that was waiting for him. I think, you know, there are times when we have to be our brother's keeper in aviation, you know, see something, say something, all of those catch words uh, mean a lot, but in aviation, you don't let a pilot. uh, One of the stories that we heard, Greg, over the last couple of days was an airplane that was getting ready to take off and it had the spoiler boards on one side up Yeah, because it was, it had some work done to it and the, the locks to hold them up because those things can kill you and they've cut off more mechanics arms and or damaged more mechanics hands and arms than one would like to, to uh, admit to. So they had the locks in and the guys taxiing out with the locks still, the spoilers still locked up. If he had take, gotten off the ground, he wouldn't have gone very far. No, we would have rolled that airplane right over. So Right. And so, I mean, this stuff happens. Where's the checks? Where's the pre-flight check? I mean, that, that's my one of my biggest frustrations with pilots after, after you know, after the, the accident in Hanscom, when I really got laser focused on what these pilots are doing, especially corporate pilots. And when I see them out there doing what they say is a pre-flight yeah. <laughs> and I'm inside ready to give up my lunch at watching them. Uh, I mean, you yeah. know, I was, I wasn't the ace of the base as a pilot, but I did look at my airplane before I got in it very closely. Yeah. Well, when you look at this next bullet point, which again is so ridiculous, it's obvious that this was influenced by the fact that one He couldn't see the radios. He definitely couldn't see the frequencies, didn't understand, or at least uh, wasn't capable of changing those frequencies uh, to the appropriate frequencies so he could make announcements um, uh, to the appropriate facilities, especially as he came into the Compton area. But for him to believe that 
in an effort to, quote, announce his presence at the airport, he flew an abbreviated military airport overflight, approaching the airport from the southeast, crossing midfield, then making a left descending turn into the traffic pattern, yada, yada, yada. Who the hell does that and think that that's an announcement? That's not an announcement for anybody or anything. You have two pilots in a Cessna 152 that most likely have a headset on. They want to hear a radio call. They aren't looking up. That's a high wing airplane. They aren't going to be able to see up. And what's going to draw their attention to even look for you if you aren't made aware or you don't make yourself aware other than flying some Mickey Mouse pattern that you learned in the uh, in the military and thinking that that's a, quote, announcement that hey, I'm here. I've arrived. I mean, it's just uh, that, you know, there are there are just times where you that pilots do these silly, stupid pilot tricks and and they they convince themselves that that was OK. That wasn't that wasn't OK. A brief digression and a disclaimer. Although this happened near Disneyland, this is to say that the Disney company had nothing to do with this flight or the pattern. <laughs> yeah well the fact is is that if this is the way the guy flies it's scary and you know is it an age-related issue i'm not going there but why would somebody think that just flying this kind of pattern over the top of the airport uh, was going to draw someone's attention and think that that was sufficient to let the world know that you are intending to land at this particular airport. And Um, one thing about this part of the flight, stress must have been mounting because not only could he not see the airport, he's doing some sort of military maneuver to enter the area. But according to this next bullet, he's coming in hot and he can't uh, see very well. So how is this going to make this pilot who's only flown this airplane once in the last year, has flown any airplane only once in the last three months, How do you think he's feeling as he's turning final? Yeah. Well, he's feeling confident, apparently, even though he can't see because he continued instead of, you know, doing something else. So it's it's obvious that, yeah, this is a problem. Yeah, it's going to make it a little harder, but apparently it didn't slow him down or stop him until he actually hit the other airplane. But the fact is, is that, you know, (laughs) he could not see the runway. And as it was now also reflecting the sun, the glare was the worst he had experienced at any airport. Dude, if this is the worst, do something else. He's been flying since the 1940s, has 24,000 hours of flight. This is the worst he's ever seen. And he's not thinking, maybe I should do something a little bit different. <laughs> Just saying. But it's obvious that, you know, he was kind of using that Braille method of, hinting and hoping that if he kept flying on a, on a particular heading, that eventually he was going to get a better you know, visual cue with the runway. One of the things about uh, flying blind into the airport, of course, this airport has parallel runways. And one of the things you saw and pointed out, Todd, was that, you know, I, I know that he just pointed the airplane in a direction, even though he couldn't see the runways, he pointed it, let it fly. And by the time he got the visual cue, the visual cue that he got wasn't a runway. He was lined up between the runways. 
And again, with parallel runways, a situation like that, you have two choices, go left or go right. Here's where fate, bad luck or whatever, once again, raises its ugly head. If he had gone the other direction, gone right instead of left, I believe the case was, there would be no accident. There would be no report. We wouldn't be here talking about all the risk factors that stacked up before then. But unfortunately, especially for the people in the 152, he chose the runway with a, an airplane on it. And, and that was the, the case where, as he was doing his, quote, announcement with his overflight and dive and drive into the traffic pattern, the Cessna 152 with the instructor and the student were inbound after having uh, gone out and apparently done some flight instruction. They entered the pattern. Now, this is where um, there's a little bit of controversy in that um, some of the witnesses said that they didn't hear either aircraft announce that uh, their position in the traffic pattern. Now, it's understandable with the T-28 because those that guy wasn't even on any frequency close to, uh, to a, an airborne frequency. The primary radio frequency, the frequency that they found in his airplane was on ground control from Whiteman. His second radio was on guard on 121.5. I mean, and, and the pilot did make a statement, the T-28 pilot did make a statement that he made a radio call, or at least he believed he made a radio call. Who'd you call? Space? Because... He wasn't on any frequency. That was that transmission, even if he did on the frequency they found, was on the ground control frequency um, at Whiteman. So and Compton is a non-towered airport. So it's absolutely essential to have some sort of idea of what's in the pattern that people announce on the common uh, airport frequency what their intentions are. Yeah. And again, I mean, he made an announcement, but not on that frequency. And, and that's so important because that's how you're identifying position of other aircraft in relation to you um, and the see and avoid concept and all the other things that go along with flying in an uncontrolled airport. And, you know, for those that, uh, you know, haven't been there in a while, why don't you get the, uh, the aeronautical information manual out and just review uncontrolled airport procedures and that kind of stuff. And it, it is so important that you announce positions. And a lot of times I'm going into airports like that. I over-announce my position. I over-announce where I am in relation to the airport, the fact that I'm on downwind, the fact that I'm on base, the fact that I'm on final, and I may call final twice, but using the name of the airport so people know that you are on final approach for runway two, five left or two, five right at Compton versus I'm on final approach for runway 25. Well, LA International has a runway 25. I mean, there are a lot of airports that have runway 25 and those frequencies carry. So it's so important to have the proper phraseology. But now you have two airplanes that come into the same piece of airspace. The Cessna 152 was ahead of the pilot in the T-28 and had successfully landed on, uh, on the runway. And again, it's obvious that, uh, that the T-28 pilot didn't see what was going on in front of him because of all the glare, the fact that, like John said, it was exacerbated by the fact that he was not only wear not wearing his glasses, but he was not wearing sunglasses. So that exacerbates that haze and that inability to really focus on a specific object. And then on top of that, you're looking into the sun. It's just human nature not to just stare at that blazing orange ball 
you're going to try and offset your vision either high, low, left or right. So you're not staring directly into the sun. And so all of those things not only create a vision distraction, but it's a mental distraction as well, because you don't really know what's going on. But he continued his pursuit to put that, uh, that airplane down on a runway. And he did. He did get it down successfully. Um, and like you were talking about, Todd, he was, you know, a bit fast coming down the pipe. Well, that Cessna 152 was still on the runway. They had just landed and hadn't cleared yet when, uh, when the T-28 came smoking down that runway on the rollout and literally ran over him. And when we talk about the stature of both airplanes, while the Cessna 152 is a high-wing airplane, it definitely does have a, um, a stature that is lower than that long-legged T-28 with the pilot who sits up relatively high. Um, it's a low-wing airplane, but it has a bulbous nose because of the, uh, the large engine, John. And, um, and so that in and of itself um, adds to the complexity of trying to see what's exactly or directly in front of the airplane, because you still have the haze, you still have the sun shining in your face, and you can't see directly in front of the airplane. And, and I think at this, point, at this point, it might be very uh, instructive to actually play the video of the crash in the public docket, docket amongst other things was an actual video taken at the time of the event. It's less than a minute long, but I think it uh, explains a lot of what we've been talking about in a very short space of time. Let's take a look. Bear with me for a minute. I'll uh, get that out. John, you were going to say something? I said that that uh, you raised all those points, but all of those get exasperated by the fact that he didn't have his glasses on. Yeah. You know, I wear glasses. I know. When I take my glasses off, I'm at a big disadvantage. So it's apparent that this video was taken by someone, probably with a cell phone, who, of course, is standing on the taxiway, um, at least videoing the, uh, the airplane. Now, whether it was a target for videoing the Cessna 152 or the T-28, not really sure. But you'll see both airplanes that appear as black dots. Um, just above that, hay, well, one, the T-28 is just above that haze layer. The other aircraft, the 152, is just coming into the haze layer as they approach uh, the camera. So let's uh, watch and learn, everyone. So you can see the 152 become more apparent as uh, he's getting closer to the runway. Uh, the airplane will then touch down out of camera view and you can see how close the T-28 is right behind him. And you're thinking, well, how is it that this guy couldn't see that airplane in front of him? Well, if for all the things we talked about, as this camera pans around, you can see that big bright orange ball, the T-28, you know, does land long um, because right after he passes and gets in close proximity to the runway, you see the large explosion, which means that if he did touch down, he touched down just as he was hitting that airplane, if not hitting the airplane um, while still airborne. And it's obvious that the T-28 pilot never saw the aircraft in front of him. And when you look at the pictures in the uh, NTSB docket of the total destruction, because the 152 
eventually uh, completely burned to the ground except for the uh, main landing gear and the and the vertical stab. Um, the flight instructor survived this at, uh, event. The student unfortunately succumbed. But the sad thing with all of this is it never had to have happened. It should have never happened. And again, you, you, you look at the, you know, the innocent victims, which are the pilots of the, the Cessna 152. They don't know what's going on behind them. Um, and even if, um, you know, the 152 pilots, which I would expect because it was a flight instruction accident and as a flight instructor, I would expect that the flight instructor is trying to teach good, good practices that they did in fact make appropriate radio calls. Um, the uh, T-28 pilot would have never heard him because he wasn't on a frequency to receive any of those radio calls. So his situational awareness, his positional awareness in relation to other aircraft was for naught because uh, he wasn't on the frequency. Another tragic accident that should not have happened. Yeah, well, um, you know, there are a lot of lessons to be learned. And again, we encourage you to go to our website, pull down the link, get into the docket, look at the, uh, the information that the NTSB collected. And of course, the lessons that are learned from this accident. It's real easy to write a probable cause and say, yeah, the T-28 pilot shouldn't have done this, didn't wear his glasses, landed in the uh, uh, glare situation, couldn't see the airplane, failed to see and avoid all of those things. That's great. That's obvious. I mean, that's the big red easy button. But you got to look at how this sequence of events evolved even before this airplane ever took off out of Whiteman Field. And was this pilot properly prepared? And it's evident that he wasn't. And, and these are the kinds of things that we try to put back into uh, the system so that we can, we can mitigate these risks. And again, that's what we get paid to do in a, in a, in a sense, because FAR 91.3 says that you as the pilot in command are responsible for the operation of the airplane, period. There's nobody else. You can't blame it on anybody else. It is you, the pilot in command, and you have that responsibility. And of course, as uh, you know, we see in the Spider-Man movies, with great power comes great responsibility. Well, when you think about the power as pilot in command, you have a lot of responsibility to yourself, to your passengers, if you have passengers, and to the people on the ground or outside of your aircraft, like in this case. It's a respect for those other pilots that were in that airplane that you just hit. And so it is key that you prepare yourself like John always talks about. And John and I just got back from a road trip. We were down in Arizona together. Um, we have the opportunity to speak to a lot of flight departments and flight schools um, who ask us to come in and talk about safety, safety. And we do safety presentations. And we spent five hours over two days, uh, shooting off our mouth to a flight department with, like John said, 20 plus pilots that operate aircraft all over the country. And it was interesting because while we're giving information about safety and, and issues that we've seen when we dissect accidents and some of the backstories, it was interesting to get the feedback about what this flight department, very structured to an extent, but it's very autonomous as well. That is pilots who are scattered all over the country with an airplane who operate in basically geographic regions have no formal procedures, no structure, no oversight. 
And that kind of bewildered both John and I, because pilots need structure. I mean, they're admit it. We're just like kids. We need boundaries. We need structure. You cannot have pilots going off half cock doing anything they want. Um, you know, that was one of the concerns about free flight when that was discussed about, oh yeah, just let pilots determine which way they're going to go to an airport from point A to point B. Well, that's great until all these pilots show up at the same airport in the same piece of airspace and the airport can't accommodate it or the airspace can't accommodate it. So, Structure is, is very good. That's why we have regulations. That's why we have operating procedures, best practices. That's why the AIM is out there. But the biggest thing here is it's up to you, the pilot in command, because you make that all happen. And you are responsible for operational discipline and the safety of that aircraft, both on the ground and in the air. Yeah. You know, it's, if you follow the steps, they'll most likely keep you out of trouble. And the steps start before you even leave your house or your hotel room. When you start thinking about what you're going to do, like you said earlier, Greg, am I fit to fly? You ask those questions. Am I in condition to, to go fly? And if you can answer yes to a whole number of those questions, then you start thinking about the airplane. You know, where am I going? What's the weather between here and there? Not only just there, but in between. And if it goes, if the weather is a little bit iffy, and you know, where am I going to go? Before you need to make that decision, you should know that this, the answer to that decision. Yeah. You know? Todd, I mean, you, you know, you're getting back into flying. So again, here's another one of those accidents that reinforces why you need to be prepared prior to takeoff. Um, the instructor you're flying with, do you feel that you, you are well prepared and are you driving the preparation or are you seeing it naturally coming from your flight instructor to cue you to be prepared? Well, it's, it's going both ways in that I'm motivated for a lot of reasons, one of which my experience with the show to really take to heart the kind of things we're talking about, doing pre-flights, being prepared, being aware of one's own limitations. And there's some things he points out that were blind spots for me. There are other things where I hope I'm pointing out that's helpful to him as an instructor, not just with we, me, but with other people. And, you know, this accident, like every accident, is an extreme example of how things can go wrong. But just because it's an extreme example, just because we have multiple points where we can say, hey, what about this? What about this? The takeaway I have is don't think that you're immune. As good as you may be, as perfect as you may think in your own mind, uh, step back a minute, or better yet, have someone else who's close to you take a critical look and say, look, you know, you're pretty good. I don't mind flying with you. I trust being with you. But here's some things we should talk about. It may not be anything that's dangerous. It's like, hey, here's some little tweaks you can do to improve how you're doing this aspect of your flying. So whatever ego you have, and I hear the tell that pilots have ego issues, put it to the side. Open your mind, learn something, and put action behind that learning. Speaking of Mr. Perfect, we're going to let Mr. Perfect have the last word of this discussion and this episode of Flight Safety Detectives. That's you, John. <laughs> oh, I thought you were giving it to Todd. Oh, no. no I'm talking about Mr. Perfect. You didn't even recognize. I was talking about you, Mr. Perfect. 
Listen, after two days of abuse that I got from you. <laughs> okay, everyone. Please. This was a great program to reinforce what we've been saying for a while. If you're going to go fly an airplane, make sure that you are fit to fly before you even leave the hotel room or your house. After you get to the airport and you're doing your pre-flight planning, make sure you do it very well, meticulously. You know, don't forget the simple things. What if I have an engine failure on takeoff? Where am I going to put it? Think about it, especially with so many airports in very crowded areas. You know, look where you're going to put it. We got nice, nice uh, Google Earth pictures today that can help you pick out some appropriate landing spots. In fact, Greg, we just talked about an accident where a, a, a captain was able to put a 580, a Convia 580, into a hoss ring. Yeah, it was in a rodeo stable. Uh, rodeo rodeo stable. ring. Mm-hmm. All right, so... If you know and have pre-planned what you need to do, sometimes it's not difficult. And when you get out to your airplane, do a good pre-flight. One of the things that, uh, that, that I am encouraged by is the number of emails that we get to the show from pilots all the way up to airline pilots that have indicated to us that they have changed the way they look at a pre-flight on their airplanes. And they are much more thorough in what they look at. Mm-hmm. And I tell GA pilots all the time, it's actually uh, uh, all pilots, but most of the time, the big airplanes, you can't do this. Touch your airplane. Move the flight controls. Even if the gust lock is on, move them because you can feel things that are loose. Right? Beat the vibration before, you, before it occurs. Right, and I I told a story yesterday, or a couple of days ago, of an uh, an Electra, Lockheed Electra, the big Electra, that crashed because the the ground handler left the the door for the air connection, the air hose connection for air start, left it unlatched. It has one little latch on it, a push latch, no no tools needed. He left it open, and the crew became so fixated with this banging noise that they heard, they flew a good airplane into the ground. And we saw that with the Eastern 1011 in, in Everglades, and I'm sure there's more of them around. Right? So just start paying attention to the airplane before you leave. Yeah. And one of the other things that came out of this, this little adventure we had was when I raised how many of them, or I asked the question, how many of you go out and look at your airplane after you've pre-flighted, you've been inside, the passengers showed up, and, but you've been sitting there for 35, 40 minutes or more. Do you go out and do your pre-flight again? None of them did. Yeah. None of them did. You know, who's been around the airplane? Was it still being fueled when you finished your pre-flight? You know, look at the number of, of fuel caps we leave off every year. Yeah. And it's a pretty good number. So, I mean, it's, it's not rocket science. It's protect yourself and protect your airplane. You know, and that's one of the basic differences I see sometimes in mechanics and pilots. Mechanics own the airplane. It's my airplane. They have that feel for it. But you don't always hear that with pilots. Yeah. Right, yeah. So it's, it's just, please, pay attention. And then after you get in the air, keep your head on a swivel. 
please just spin it around. We have a good example here where this guy didn't see the airplane that he should have. And we know that his glasses were rolling it. It doesn't matter. All right. Keep your head on a swivel and fly safely. To listen or watch more episodes of this show, go to FlightSafetyDetectives.com, the Flight Safety Detectives YouTube channel, or your favorite place to listen to podcasts. To contact John and Greg about the show, send them an email at FlightSafetyDetectives at gmail.com. And remember, for aviation insurance needs, contact Avemco Insurance at Avemco.com or give them a call at 888 888- 879-0389. Mention Flight Safety Detectives and receive a 5% discount. Thanks for listening to the Flight Safety Detectives and remember to always fly safe.